Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Excited to introduce our guest today. Get ready to meet a true game changer in the world of technology and property management. I'm thrilled to welcome a good friend and one of the most dynamic leaders in the prop tech industry, Andre Gorenkov. Most recently, Andre served as the Managing Director and Chief Technology Officer of Graystar, the global titan in residential property management, where Andre led a phenomenal enterprise technology team. His visionary leadership fueled Graystar's remarkable growth trajectory, both in the U.S. and globally, leveraging the power of cutting-edge data analytics to redefine business landscape. Welcome to the show, Andre. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Hi, Patrick. Andre, I know I gave you a big intro. I thought maybe uh, you could give us an update on on what you're up to now, and we can dig a little bit into your background. You've got an amazing set of experiences we'd love to hear more about. Sure. So at the moment, I'm advising a couple of equity funds in the real estate industry, leveraging the experience that I had fortunate enough to collect at Volume at Graystar. The really broad kind of point of view of uh, seeing what are the problems in real estate, how to solve them, who are the smart players out there trying to solve them, and uh, trying to tie it all together, working with some late-stage startups. That's very cool. I know uh, your background, you've, you've got some interesting stops. Do you mind sharing You know your background? I know there's some intercept with you know some very interesting historical points, such as you know being the bad guy in Flash Boys. That's right. So um, it's probably my, my favorite story. Uh, so after I, I did a bit of consulting early on as a software developer and I landed on Wall Street and I was fortunate enough to land in this company called Direct Edge, uh, which was one of the first fully electronic stock exchanges in the United States uh, around 2007. And 2007, 2010 was this nuclear arms race of who can go faster. You know, can you shave off microseconds from high frequency trading? And, you know, there's never fast enough. Somebody's always willing to spend more to put your server side by side to go from a Ethernet connection to a fiber connection to, you know, bypass the operating system. And it got ridiculous. I mean, it, it led to some really irresponsible behavior. You uh, might have heard about the flash crash of 2010 where the market dropped in um, a matter of minutes by 50% and came right back up. We were housed in the same building as a company called Knight Capital Markets, which no longer exists in its former shape because they basically traded themselves out of business in about 45 minutes using, you know, with a rogue algorithm. So I got to be kind of on the sidelines and, you know, watch that, not a slow motion car crash, a very much real time, fast motion uh, car crash. And at the time, uh, there was a big industry litigation kind of suing everybody related involved in high frequency trading and michael lewis the um author of moneyball wrote a book called flash boys which was about you know their responsible behavior of the high frequency trading industry and sure enough our company and some of our peers were kind of featured as the i guess the enablers if you will call it and you know at the time it was remember a lot of criticism levied towards michael saying well this is not exactly you're describing it not exactly how it works and you know painting in a worse light than it is but you know, I think he did a good job taking a very complex subject and trying to make it accessible to a wide audience. 
I've always wondered why they never made that book into a movie. So many of his books have turned into really great movies. And that one, I don't know. Any insight? I'm just curious. Have you ever thought about that? I could have sworn that there was a movie being made by Netflix. At least I saw an announcement or a preview for it. I want to say maybe two years ago. I haven't really paid attention to see if they've kept track or what, but no, it's it's out there. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, if it has been made a movie, I'm going to feel like an idiot because uh, I generally do watch every movie, especially from his books, because they, they are usually Moneyball is one of my favorite movies of all time. Not that we're here to talk about my favorite movies. So I'm curious with, uh, you know, getting into technology, but, you know, I think your first stop was law school. Uh, my first stop was engineering. So engineering, was okay. And then law school. But th this is actually a great transition. Um, so when, when it hit the fan with high frequency trading, at the time I was head of software development for Direct Edge, and you know, my product work was developing new order types, new connections, new routing strategies, and so on. And when, when it all hit the fan overnight, we went from new product development to basically keep regulators at bay, um, assure the investing public that there's full transparency and kind of general regulatory and compliance CYA mode. And our uh, general counsel, would basically walk to my desk and drop a stack of regulations and say, this just got, you know, enacted or published or otherwise dropped in our lap. And we need to go accommodate this now, or in two months, we might not have a exchange license to trade. And it wasn't the set of engineering requirements. It was a set of legalese. A lot of legal framework in the US, at least around securities is very, it's not prescriptive. It's, they, they want you to have certain outcomes, but they don't tell you how to do it. You should make reasonable efforts to so and so. Well, like, what's a reasonable effort? I don't know. So, <laughs> so um, I went to law school. I went to law school at night after work uh, for three and a half years. So every every day commuted from Jersey City to to Manhattan to attend law school and focused my studies on securities law, uh, investment law, and uh, the goal was to understand. You know, how the exchange operates, what are our risks, what are our profit drivers, what are our expense drivers. And I think that's probably been the biggest lesson that kind of stuck with me ever since. I Every job I've gone to, the most important thing I think I can do in the first 90 days is to learn the foundations of how the business operates. That's just going to make or break you in IT. If you, if you don't understand how the business operates, you can't be a partner to the CEO. You can't talk to them in the terms that matter to them. You're going to talk about servers and you're going to talk about applications and their eyes are going to glaze over and they're not going to give you budget. So that's really interesting. So what does that mean? Pull that apart for some folks that maybe need to understand the strategic purpose of what does that look like and what does that mean? I'll give you a kind of a concrete example in uh, a subsequent job. So after Direct Edge, uh, I thought I was going to be an attorney. I actually had a job offer from the Securities and Exchange Commission, but found out very quickly that I can't feed a family of four in Washington to be on a junior attorney salary. So instead, I went down to Tampa, Florida to a, uh, a broker dealer, financial wealth management firm called Raymond James, now Fortune 500. And it was interesting because the way most people think about wealth managers is you know, somebody who advises you, manages your money in the end. But when you kind of are on the back side of that, there's a lot of different roles involved. There's some financial advisors who focus just on advice. Others are truly want to manage portfolios. Others don't. There's different legal structures of the relationship between the firm and financial advisors. And 
all those nuances are uh, they influence, for example, the contract structure, how advisors get compensated. So you might go to one advisor and say, well, we built this great thing for you, this technology. And in their contract structure, the company pays for all their expenses and they're great, you know, more tech, more efficient. I don't pay any more for it. Fantastic. Bring it on. And for another group who is we call independence, essentially they own their own business and we provide services to them uh, for a fee. They're very cost conscious. They're paying for every piece of paper coming out of their office. And they're like, I don't want to pay an extra thousand dollars a month to use your, you know, your software. I'm happy with Excel and, you know, pen and paper. So really understanding how the business is structured, who makes revenue, how is essential. Otherwise you can't do things like effective change management. You really need to understand the drivers of adoption for your users. And most of the time that comes back down to how the money's made and spent. And you mentioned previously, and I think this is a really important issue is what's important to the CEO, right? I think when I talk to folks who are trying to do innovation or create change in organizations, they're looking for good ideas. They're looking for like a a smarter way to do X, Y, or Z. And I think a, a lot of that crashes on the rocks of landing when it didn't start with a conversation of like what's important strategically to leadership, right? Because everybody is going to be aligned with that person's long, near, and short-term vision. Is that something that you think is critical to create some of the changes that you have at the organization, like Raymond James and some of the others where you've come in and and had an impact on transformation? I mean, so first of all, I think there's a hundreds of books on effective transition. I suggest somebody coming into a you know new role, don't wing it, go grab one of them. I, I don't I have a specific recommendation, but they'll kind of tell you to do the same thing, which is first spend the first 90 days on learning how you'll be successful. You don't get a chance to be new twice. And once you get kind of bogged down in the projects, you don't really get a chance to pick your head up again. So spend that time to explore your team, your peer group, your boss, your boss's peer group, if you report to the CEO, you know, really spend the time learning, not just the business, but what's important, what's been missing, what's a history organization, you know, what are they going to call success a year from now, three years from now, and so on. I do think part of effectiveness, part of the trick is being able to speak the CEO's language. And, you know, here's a concrete example. When I got to Graystar, there was a tiny itsy bitsy information security group it was two people you know for a company of twenty three thousand and you know with a billion dollar revenue and they were just nascent they're maybe a year into the making so less than a million dollar budget and uh the first conversation i had with our leadership group with our senior management team was well you're very clearly under understaffed underspent and I get kind of a shrug, like, huh, no, so what? That's a cost sink. Can't we just get better cybersecurity insurance and, you know, why spend more money? So it took me a little bit of time to do my homework and understand not just conceptually, this is a risk, but what are the concrete risks to the business? And in the case of Graystar, we manage a lot of people's money. We raise funds, we build real estate, we disperse rent rolls. We move tens of billions of dollars around the world every year. And, you know, God forbid one of those wires gets misfunded or mis- misdirected through social engineering or through another kind of technique, malware, whatever. It's it's going to be a huge reputational risk and quite frankly, a very direct financial cost, right? It's our fault that money went into a different account than it was supposed to. We've had, we're going to have to reimburse that. So coming back and saying, well, in the past year, you've had X number of miswires. 
and that costs you a certain amount of money, give me half of that. Give me a third of that. And if I can prevent those, that's a huge boon for you as far as reputational salvation, as far as financial impact. And by the way, the cost of cyber insurance tripled from this year to the year past, or from last year to this year. Um, and it's probably going to double again next year unless we start putting in some of these controls in place. That was the conversation that resonated. That was a conversation that our board members woke up and said, that's you know exactly the types of problems that we you know brought you in to solve. So a very different conversation within six months just by learning what's important to the board and what's important to the CEO. Well, it sounds like that legal degree has come in to play many times throughout your career, right? I'd like to think so. I don't, I, you know, it's, it was a very expensive general education about how the world works, but it's come in handy a couple of times. So I'm curious, there's a lot of talk around AI, obviously it's having an impact. What's your perspective? What What do you see? Is it a lot of hype right now? I, I think we, we can all agree it, it's the future, but like, what's the next 12, 18 months? So AI has been around for in some shape or form as long as you know as long as I've been working, which is twenty years, and I've I've done some hands-on data science model development. What's really changed in the past, we'll call it nine months, is the maturity of the tools used to train AI. So you, you hear a lot about generative AI, right? So it's uh, AI that can create as opposed to just classify and you know score. And so the use cases that are opening up just in the past, you know, right in front of our eyes are amazing. I think that the creation of generative AI is going to be just as transformative as the internet itself. If I had, you know, if I was 21, 22 years old today and had to start over and pick a career, uh, this would be the direction I would go all day, every day. In the past, it was, in the past past, you'd have to kind of like create the tools to write your models. Then, you know, Google came out with TensorFlow and, and other tools, and all of a sudden it became a little bit easier. And just now with, with OpenAI's um, API for natural language processing, there is just a huge acceleration for not only creation of new AI tools, but even just accelerating the work that people do already. As an example, this is just a little anecdote, but I was hands-on playing around with some Microsoft Teams APIs. First time I've done that in, in a long, long time, and I needed a refresher. And I went to ChatGPT and said, hey, give me a, give me a stuff program that does it. And it worked. It was like amazing. And I said, oh, you know, tinker around with it. And I can't figure something out. Hey, Chad, you need to bug this for me. Well, here's the error that you made. And I mean, it compressed my time to write that program by probably by 95%. You know, if I think about how that can impact the productivity of my developers, that's amazing, right? Microsoft Office has a product called Copilot. And so for those of us who are MS Office users, and I'm never going to write another PowerPoint again. I'm not that creative. You know, there's people out there who can make wonderful PowerPoint decks. I can make good ones, but Copilot can make better than I can. So, you know, use that, get 90% there, and then, you know, put your final tweaks on it. That's amazing to me. Yeah, I think uh, the idea that this is replacing mass displacement, I don't really see that just yet. I think, obviously, it's potential down the road. And I think most people I've talked to, the concern is that it's going to happen quicker than in generations past when there's, you know, like going from typewriters to word processors or, you know, the industrial revolution took, right, 100 years to actually finalize its move. You know, will it be decades? I don't know. One of the conversations that I have with people specifically around the software engineering side is it's a great 
equalizer. So is it really going to have a huge impact on high-performing, high-quality software teams? Probably not to your point of compression. It's probably be like closer to 50, 60%. But for like novices to get up and get going, you can't have zero knowledge, right? Obviously, if you've done it before. So, you know, for those lower performing teams, it might be compression of like, you know, 75, 80% of the time is, is taken out. But I also think there's that, I don't know if you've used Grammarly. I'm a big Grammarly user. Yeah, and I've seen it evolve too. It used to be, you know, spell checking. Now it's like make it sound, uh, you know, more empathetic or more genuine. Totally. And, and but the other part is like, as a person who's always struggled with writing, right? I could talk, I could draw a picture, uh, but writing for some reason there was just always a block there. I see it as an equalizer of like, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be hard for great writers to to kind of stand out because there's going to be people who are going to be above average writers. So the way I think about maybe the macro impact to the industry, which is maybe not the question you asked me where my mind goes. Awesome. Uh, you know, um, I think that the winners in industry, just more broadly across any sort of industry, will be the fully integrated platforms, right? So in the past, you had somebody who was like, you know, I specialize on machine learning and insurance, and I can make a machine learning model, natural language processing model that can answer claims. You know, great. That's really valuable. Uh, what's going to be valuable now is not to advertise specific names, but, you know, the Salesforce forces, the Oracle, the, the dynamics of the world, or, you know, integrated information security uh, platforms and integrated DevOps platforms where the individual functions can actually be accelerated greatly through the use of AI. And, and really what differentiates them versus point solutions is the fact that it all works well together. So I actually view this as a huge tailwind for these kind of large, broad platforms of all kinds, you know, whether it's like I said, InfoSec or infrastructure management or DevOps or software development or ERPs or what have you. Mm. It's an interesting perspective. And I think the engineer in me is like, ah, those guys, they'll, they'll, they'll struggle, right? A little bit of like, uh, what platform are they using from like a, an AI standpoint? I, that's where I'm curious. It's like everybody's got their good look at chat GPT, right? And that's a single point platform. It's not integrated and it's highly effective in its, in its disconnectedness. If these systems are internalized, right? Like what is the quality of that AI internally? Are they going to be able to do that, Right. Yeah, I see your point. I mean, obviously, they're all going to develop their own. I know Microsoft's pouring a ton of money into this. So is Google, so is Amazon, so is Meta. So you're right. You know, dynamics, natural language modules are going to be different than like Google's, right? But the point is that the quality of, let's say, an AI-powered agent uh, in ITSM system or in a CRM system that's possible in 2023 is you know, leaps and bounds more powerful than one that was in possible in 2020. Um, and what you can argue with me, whether, you know, can Microsoft write a, an AI engine as, as, as good as OpenAI? And maybe you're right. Maybe the answer is no, they can't. But I'm confident that if OpenAI is 100 and Microsoft's an 80, well, the baseline before now was like a 20. So it's still huge, huge, huge uh, progress forward. Yeah. I think part of my my disbelief is I can't believe that Microsoft Dynamics UI is still as just brutal, right? Just like it's like 2000 level, you know, year 2000 level user interface with all these pop-up windows. 
where it's like, how is this still your UI? It's just, I'm not a big fan. That's, that's not my experience with it. Um, I, you know, at first of all, it's, it's, it's customizable. We can have uh, power apps in, on top of it and things like that. But even the out-of-the-box UI, it's, it's fairly comparable to Salesforce and to other things. So I, I think that might be a, an outdated. Maybe I'm showing my my uh, age on my experience with Dynamics. Uh, yeah, wait, I, I think it's my, my experience. I think the last time I used Dynamics was seven or eight years ago. So maybe things have changed <laughs> significantly. So I guess uh, I would love to get one last thought from you before we, we let you go. Uh, what do you think people need to do between here and the end of this year? Right. If you're, if you're, you know, you're, I know there's a big general topic, but I, I just want to think like, what's on your mind of like, what is, what do people need to do between here and the end of the, this year to make next year a huge success? I don't think that 2023 is different professionally than other years. There's definitely a hiring freeze right now. There's a lot of people losing their jobs, but it's the formula for success that I don't think it changes. I think it means being more disciplined about doing the things you ought to be doing anyway. One is network, 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 get out there, go to conferences, talk to peers, not because you need something from them, not because you're going to do a business deal, but because you're going to lead to something. And so if you find yourself out of a job six months from now, you're going to have a big network to turn to, and you're going to have lots of opportunities around you. And if that happens to you, you know, think of it as uh, spring cleaning, right? And a lot of times we're heads down in the project that we're on and we don't take the time to reinvent ourselves. So keep in touch with what's happening in your industry. Keep in touch with new technologies. Again, if you're thinking about generative AI, how can that work in your industry? You know, in real estate, I can tell you can completely change the way leasing is done. Probably tremendously increases corporate productivity regardless of industry. But how can that work in your industry? And that's one example, right? There's other things too. It's not just generative AI. You know, some of the other things that are already maybe not quite leading edge, but certainly things like blockchain, certainly things like robotic process automation. The keep the business mindset before your technology mindset. I'll just go back to where I started. A lot of what we do is sometimes called digital transformation, and it's often led by technology executives. But if you look at what's actually involved in a successful digital transformation, it's changing people's jobs descriptions, it's changing operating models, it's changing revenue models, it's a lot of enterprise change management, so getting people to behave in a very different way. And it's all empowered by technology, so it's a necessary block, but it's it's not a sufficient block. It's only you know, maybe 50% of the work, maybe even less. So the more you can pick yourself up from your comfy technology chair and kind of get out there into the maybe a little bit uncomfortable business zone, the better position you will be to speak effectively to your business leaders, to lead change, to achieve digital transformation, and you know do that in a way that hopefully goes out beyond your blinders and into the broader industry network around you. Uh, I found that those people who are kind of least possessive of information, most willing to share, most willing to talk about what they're doing, they benefit the most because other people talk to them and they, they learn a lot more than they give up. And I'm using, you know, air quotes to say that because you're not really giving anything up. That's excellent advice. Absolutely. I agree. I think it's, uh, I think that your focus on, you know, how does the business work aligning 
but also it sounds like uh, the thread I hear in a lot of your uh, success and what you think you need to do right now is relationships, understanding the people, understanding people inside the business, understanding people outside the business, understanding people in your industry and giving, right? It's definitely something I know Shelly and I both think have been a tremendous part of our success with our careers is always thinking about like, how can you give more? And I'll butcher a quote. It just, whoever gives the most wins, right? It, it seems uh, so clear as day that uh, it's the, the people who can just keep giving are the ones who uh, inevitably uh, get so much more in return. But yeah, I think that's the trick. You have to be able to give without expectation of getting. Yeah. I mean, you knock on 10 doors and one of those doors might end up being a tremendous opportunity. The other one, nine, you just have to look at it as, you know, a wonderful first date where you got to learn something about something that you didn't know before. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Andre. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. Great to have you on. Congratulations on all your success. And uh, please keep us up to date as, as uh, you're helping these other organizations. And, and uh, you know, just let us know how things are going in the future. But really appreciate it again, you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Shelly. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.